We're in Zechariah, chapter 7, verses 1 through 7 this morning. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regem Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and, to the, pro- and the prophets, Should I weep? And abstain in the fifth month, as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh, for these seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? Good morning. Welcome. For those of you who are not members here, uh, you're here in the middle of uh, a study on the book of Zechariah. we're, we're not big on celebrating traditions like Christmas and Easter, so we're making our way through. But God, God providentially has placed a passage in front of us that is so perfect for this day. Um, and I didn't plan it out. I couldn't plan it out. Uh, I, I, can't, I don't schedule that well. I'm not smart enough to do that. But this passage is perfect for this day that, that many throughout the world are, are celebrating and remembering the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we can praise him. We can praise him before we even begin for giving us a passage that's so incredibly appropriate for this day. Amen? Okay. So this day, this Sunday, this Easter day, many of you call it Resurrection Sunday. Um, it, is, it is the day that um, has most people respond to church attendance. More so than Christmas um, approximately, in our country alone, and you know, depending upon the, the people you listen to, 66% of the American population got up this morning and went to church. 66%. That's over 2 million people got up this morning, they got dressed, and they went into a church. Now, that, you say, well, it's a big deal. That's about 70, 80 million more than the average Sunday. That's a lot. And, and so the compelling question for us is, why? I mean, why? Why today? Why any Sunday? I mean, what compels anybody to get up on a Sunday when you're not compelled by your earthly master to go to work and to come to church? Why? By God's grace, this Resurrection Sunday morning, from the passage that we have before us, we will see why. What our motivation is for being here this morning. You say, well, I'm here every Sunday, so me being here is not a big deal. Why are you here every Sunday? Why, does it, why do we go to church at all? Why do we read our Bibles? Why do we pray? Why do we attend discipleship groups? Why do we pray on Wednesday nights? Why do we serve? Why do we share the gospel? Why do we do any of it? Certainly we should know the answer. And it better be better than, well, I've gone to church all my life. That's, I mean... That's just, we know that's a terrible answer. So why? This morning, by God's grace, from this passage, we'll examine it, and it will examine us. We'll examine the Word of God, and by God's grace, it will examine us, and we'll ask three questions, and by God's grace, we'll answer three questions. Number one, does it matter why we worship? Yes or no? I mean, it's going to be a simple yes or no. You say, well, I already know the answer to that. Well, good. Number two, what are the principles of this right worship? What are the principles on why we should worship? What does that look like? And this is all in the passage. Number three, how are these accomplished in the life of the believer? So, does it matter why we worship? One, what are the right principles to right worship? Two, and how are we to accomplish this? Let's look at the first one. Today, we live in a culture, we live in a time where faith is uh, embraced, faith is taught. Uh, believing is taught, and I'm not saying specifically faith in whom or what, but faith is part of the cultural movement, to have faith. Not in any one particular, but faith in something. And whatever that, that faith or that belief system is, then you worship it in accordance with what you believe to be right worship. 
So you worship in a manner that makes you happy or brings you a sense of peace and comfort or that appeases a guilty conscience. We create faith and then we create worship and we move through life in such a way that we're never called into question. Is it a right faith? Is it a true faith? Is it right worship? We have a group here coming from Bethel. And they have a question for the priests and prophets in Jerusalem. And they want to know about a particular religious um, exercise. It was a fast. And they want to know, should we keep doing this? Is it right to do this? Why are we doing this at all? Look at verses 1 through 3. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. That's November, December, that time period. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezir and Regim Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord and hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? So on December 5th, 518 BC, I love the fact that we know the exact date. God spoke, the creator of the universe spoke to Zechariah. And he had an answer for these men that was utterly shocking to them and should be shocking to us as well. So the word of the Lord comes to Zechariah, December 7th, 518 B.C., which is exactly two years, not exactly, but two years after we had the night of visions. So we're two years later, okay? And that means we're two years into the construction of the temple. And we're only two years away from its actual completion, okay? And that's important historically to understand this word of the Lord. So Sherezir and Regim Melech and their entire entourage, they come... And they want to know from the priests and prophets, shall we continue in this particular fast? Because this fast is about the temple. And the temple's almost rebuilt, so should we stop? I mean, we've been doing it for 70 years. That's a long time to fast. I think it would be a good time for us to stop this fast in light of the rebuilding of the temple. There were four fasts, really quickly, that the exiles embraced. This is not in the Bible, by the way, and it's not wrong that they did it, but it became part of their religious practice. And there were four fasts that the exiles engaged in as a, a means of remembering and, um, and expressing to God the woe over the fact that they were in captivity, that they lost their city, that the temple was burned. And they had, they had four. The ninth day of the fourth month, they, they mourned and they fasted over the walls being uh, destroyed of the city. On the 18th day of the 5th month, the one we're talking about, they mourned over the temple and the city being burned, being leveled. On the 3rd day of the 7th month, you don't have to memorize these, by the way. On the 3rd day of the 7th month, they commemorated the assassination of Gedalia, which we read about in Jeremiah 41. He was the governor that was put in place by, um, by Babylon to oversee those who remained um, and he was assassinated, and they mourned over that. And then the last one, the 10th day of the 10th month, they mourned over the day that Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged the city and came and surrounded the city. And so you have four fasts, all of which expressing the suffering they were enduring as, as exiles in Babylon. Now, with the temple project almost complete, they come to the priests and they come to the prophets and they want to say, this fast that we're doing now, this one on the, the 18th day, the fifth month, can we stop it? Because as you can see, Zechariah, the temple is almost complete. In less than two years, it was going to be complete. And we're mourning over its destruction. So does this fast make sense anymore? I mean, it's a legitimate question, right? You think, well, there's nothing wrong with that, at least on the surface anyway. And what they're asking is, is there good reason for us to do this? Is there good reason for, for us to attend church? I mean, the, the application is perfect. Is there good reason for us to read our Bibles and pray? Is there a reason that we should be doing this on a continual basis? Or are we done with this too? Can we stop it? You've heard the old adage, be careful what you ask for. <laughs> well, they get an answer. And it's not a yes or a no. They wanted a yes or no. Yes, keep fasting. No, stop fasting. But they didn't get that. They got something from God that I know leveled them, and in my rendering this should level us as well. Because God doesn't address their actual feast. He doesn't say, keep doing it, don't keep doing it. He goes below. He deals with the form in the latter part of chapter 7, which we'll do next week. So come back next week and we'll look at what that right worship is, what it looks like in application. But he starts where we have to start, and he wants to know the motivation of the heart. 
He said, forget about asking me should you do it or not do it. He said, why have you been doing it all along these 70 years? What's your purpose in fasting? And he directs them, and by his grace directs us, back to the question of why are we here? Why did any of us get up this morning and come to church? Why did any of you get up this morning and pray or read your book? Why? Why? Because God knows, and he wants to make sure that we know. And there's a right reason and there's a wrong reason. He reveals to them the secret motivations of their hearts for their fasting on the 18th day of the fifth month. And I I pray that by God's grace, he'll reveal to the 200 million attending church today on the 31st day of this third month why we're here. And saints, we've got to get this one right. Because if we don't get this one right, nothing else matters. The why is imperative. God, as only he can do, he peels back their question. Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? And he goes right to the heart. I mean, he bypasses. He doesn't answer it. He bypasses it. and says, all right, you ask me a question. I'm going to ask you a question. Kind of like Job, gird up your loins and prepare yourself because here I come. I'm going to ask you a question and it's going to be piercing. And he wants to know this. Why do you worship? Not should you keep doing this, keep reading your Bible, keep going to church, but why are you worshiping me in the first place? Because to God, that matters. And it doesn't just matter in part, it matters in whole. In other words, we can do all the right worship in form. You say, well, what is that? Well, we know. Gathering as a church, right? Singing to God, praying to God, proclaiming the gospel. This is right worship. We see it in the Bible. Well, what else? Reading my Bible. Where do I see that? In the Bible that you're supposed to be reading, right? Prayer. Gathering on doing our, our, our ministry together as small groups. Evangelizing the lost. Meeting the needs of, of, of the widow and the orphan and the weak and the least and the last. I mean, all this is prescribed. The how is important. But God says, before we talk about the how, the fundamental question is the why. Why do you do any of that? And he gives us the reason why. He said, there's only one reason to come to church. There was only one reason to get up this morning and be here. You know what that is? Don't answer, but I pray you do. It's to give God glory. It's for the glory of God. You say, well, there are many other benefits. I agree. Many. But the primary purpose for us being here to worship God, the primary purpose for us singing songs to God, the primary purpose for us praying is His glory. Period. And we don't want to add anything to that. It's His glory. It's for His glory. It's about His glory. And if we don't, our form of worship can be perfect to the Word of God. I mean, we can do it just right. And if it's not for his glory, it's completely worthless. So why? Is it important why we worship? Yes. The answer is yes. So you say, well, what what are the basic principles of this? What does it look like? I'll give you three. There are several, but I'll give you three that the text provides us. Principles for right worship. Let me read back again verses 4 through 7, and then we'll look at those. The word of the Lord of hosts came to me, this is Zechariah, say to all the people of the land and the priests, so no one's excluded here, I love it. Everybody's got to hear this. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and the seventh month, so they fast on those two, for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and the lowland were inhabited? God doesn't answer their question. He asks them another question. It's so like God. Doesn't he do that? Jesus did that all the time. They ask him a question. He goes, oh, I got a question for you. I'm like, wait a minute. And of course, his question makes their question pretty much irrelevant because God's always driving us to the deeper issues. He's always pushing us to the movements of our heart. And our, and our purpose. And so they're called into deep introspection as to why they're living this life of faith at all. 
first and foremost, number one principle. You ready? For those of you taking notes, this will be a short note. All worship that is true worship will be for God. All worship that's true worship will be for God. Look at verse 5. He says, was it for me that you fasted? Of course, we know the answer. They're going, no. He said, was it for me? You want to know if you should stop the fast? Let's ask first, why were you fasting? Was it for me? True worship will always be for the glory of God. It will always be to magnify the glory of God. It will always be about God. And that means what? If that's true, that's the part we hate. Because that means it's not about you and it's not about me. If true worship is about God, period, and we don't add anything on to that, then it's not about our circumstances. It's not about our marriages. It's not about our finances. It's not about our kids or our parents or our marriage. It's not about finding a spouse. It's not about attempting to manipulate the creator of the universe to get him to do what you want him to do by worshiping him. It's not about expanding your social network. It's not about being with all your friends. Fundamentally, any worship of any kind, every religious exercise and discipline we engage in, if it's real biblical worship, it is for the glory of God. The reverse also being true. Any religious exercise we engage in, any discipline we engage in that is not for his glory is not real worship. At least not a worship of him. In verse 5, God said, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and the seventh month for these 70 years. That's a long time. That's a long fasting exercise. Was it for me that you fasted? And in the Hebrew, I love it. It's, such a, it, it's, a, it's a deeper meaning. It literally says, were you fasting for me, even for me? So it's this, were you, for me. And God's revealing to them and to us by his grace that it wasn't about them. Biblical worship is fundamentally theocentric. It is not man-centered, it is God-centered. In other words, their fasting was completely irrelevant because it was completely irreverent. It was irrelevant because it wasn't about God. It wasn't about God. And that means, saints, that all those who gathered in churches, the 200 million that gathered in churches this morning because it's Easter Sunday, or who gathered in churches this morning to appease a guilty conscience, or who gathered in churches this morning because their spouse was saying, we got to go to church, and they did it to appease their spouse. All those who gathered this morning to find a trick or a pill or a program to make everything right, all of you who gathered here this morning because you were raised in the church or because you wanted to hear some amazing music or you wanted to watch an overzealous pastor sometimes make a fool of himself, wrong reasons. It's not worship. Now, the contemporary nature of this teaching, I think, is without parallel in our culture and in the church. It couldn't be more appropriate for our time. And I'll give you just a few examples. I had too many. I had to cut them out. The practice of contemporary American Christianity has become painfully, painfully self-centered. How do I, how do I know? I'll just give you a few book titles. These are from the top Christian book list. You ready? Take Back Your Faith from the American Dream. God's Creative Power for Healing You. I want you to listen to the person the one who is lifted up here in these titles. What on earth am I here for? Your best life now. God's creative power will work for you. Every day of Friday for you. It's your time. Become a better you. You, you, you. Every book. You say, well, I don't read those. Praise God. How about some of the music that we listen to? Can I, can I touch this without offending half the church? This is an observation. Put your tomatoes away. <laughs> Christian music, whatever that is, how many songs are sung? 
even in churches, supposedly to lift up God, that actually lift up man. And it's subtle. We don't have songs up there that go, I am worthy. We don't. Right? That's too obvious. But what do we do? The first person singular, I, me, my, is used with God as the direct object. You say, I don't know what that means grammatically. I'll I'll give you some lyrics. Draw me close to you. You are worthy of my praise. I give you my heart. I enthrone you. I exalt you. Do you see the... It's subtle because we do those things, right? But where's the emphasis? God or man? I, I, you, I, I, my, my. I enthrone you. I give you my heart. I exalt you. One author writes this. He said, in too many of these songs, it seems ultimately about us instead of about God. God is an object out there that needs or wants my love, my worship, my heart. But when we do this, we have made ourselves the center of the worship experience. Our experience has become the focus. Listen, this is great. He says, we have experienced God and found him worthy. However, and he writes this in bold print, God is worthy, period. Whether we find him worthy or not, God's worthy. When we sing lyrics as a Christian people, When we say things like, I offer my life to you, you are my every desire, you are all I want, Jesus. Those statements aren't wrong, but you see the tendency to move to man and away from God. In just the past month, probably month and a half, and Mr. McKinley can testify to this, every day this church has received literature on how to make this Easter Sunday the Easter Sunday. I mean, I get it. Economically, you're talking about a million-dollar, multi-million-dollar, probably billion-dollar church outreach, right? So it's there. There's money there to be made. Everything from how to throw a Palm Sunday outreach party to, this was my favorite, the Celebrity Advantage modeled after the celebrity apprentice, Donald Trump. If you didn't watch it, praise God for that. Listen to the advertisement. You ready? No matter what kind of event you organize this Easter, having a high-profile Christian participate in some headlining way, a narrator, an MC, an entertainer, will increase your response. Local figures like the mayor, the football star, or even the local news anchor are great options if your church doesn't have the resources to bring in a well-known celebrity. It's not new. It's not shocking. But God finds it grievous. This, This movement away from God to man. We've seen it throughout the history of the world. We've certainly seen it in the history of the church. And even though it's culturally relevant and it's okay in lots of churches because lots of churches are doing it, God comes along and in this single passage says, I do not approve. Worship is about me, he says. Worship is about God and it is for God. Why? Well, what is worship? We ascribe value. We ascribe glory. We ascribe majesty to someone. Who is worthy of all the glory and all the honor and all the majesty? It's God. So the reasonable thing is to worship God. For the pagan, the reasonable thing is to worship God. Why? He has ultimate worth in the entire known universe. God has ultimate value and ultimate worth. And therefore, he should be worshipped and honored above everyone and everything else. God deserves our worship. And for the believer, he demands it. You say, what? He demands it. Old Testament, New Testament. I'll start in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. What? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. You say, but that's not saying that, that I should worship him above all else. Of course it is. It's saying make the greatest love of your heart 
your mind, your soul, your strength, your body, your voice, your ears, your hands, your feet, your whole life, your greatest love, make it God. And if you do, then you will worship Him. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God comes along and he utterly condemns their fasting. But not because they were fasting. And not because he didn't institute it. He didn't say, that's not in Leviticus. He didn't. He condemns it. Because the why is wrong. He condemns it because it wasn't about him. Fundamentally, how many of us hate that? I mean, how, how many of you are just going, ugh. You say, I'm not going to raise my hand. A couple centuries before, through the prophet Isaiah, God said of his own people, Day after day they seek me out, they seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come to, to near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and why have you not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with, with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect the voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast that I have chosen only a day for a man to humble himself? Their fasting had become a means in and of itself. And not a means to God. Their fasting had been a means to overcome their circumstances. Rebuild the temple. Bring us back home. Fix the city. Instead of fasting for the glory of God. Richard Phillips in his commentary writes this. And it's pointed. If this is true, this means that any religious expression or act we may offer. Whether it's coming to church, giving money, or doing good deeds reading the Bible or praying, even fasting and mourning, means nothing to God unless it is done for His pleasure, His glory, His service, and His love. Unless our worship is offered in sincerity, God rejects it outright. Whew. The prophet Amos said, I hate, God said through him, I hate I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Now, some of you may be thinking, isn't this wrong on God's part? I mean, isn't this extreme that it's all about him? Does it have to all be about him? Does every worship service and every song and every prayer and every Bible study have to be about him? Isn't that a little eccentric? Is God so ultra cosmically needy that it all has to be about him? You say, I find that offensive. I understand that. Our human sin nature will find it offensive. Why? Because God's love fundamentally is not only incredibly attractive, but it's radically offensive. Why? Why? Well, we love talking about God's love because that's the love that comes out of heaven. That's the love that comes down in the form of the person of Jesus Christ. That's the love that went to the cross and died for my sins. That's the love that's given to me freely even though I hate God. That's radical. That's great mercy and great grace. I love that. And at the same time, we go, but that love ultimately is not about you. You say, wait a minute. No, I'm not liking this love so much. The offense then comes because the ultimate focus of this love is not man. Are we blessed by it? Yes. Do we receive it? Yes. Are there benefits from it? Incredible. But the love is not just for you. The love primarily is directed and focused where? To God. It's back to God. And so we are offended by that because we want it to be about us. We want this to be our party. Nobody else's. Jonathan Lehman in his book, The Church and What, Brother? Thank you. The Church and the Surprising Offense of God's Love. He writes, the God-centeredness of worship, of holy lives, and of holy ambitions offends us. It's judgmentally exclusive. It excludes the worship of all other things besides God. It excludes the worship of me. And that's why we hate it. 
His love is incredibly attractive and simultaneously offensive. Because it's not about us. So the first fundamental principle of right worship is, it must be for God. It must be for God. The second thing that this, this passage bears out beautifully, the second major principle of why we are to worship God, and what right, right worship is at the level of the heart, is that right worship will mortify sin to magnify God's name. Right worship will mortify sin for the purpose of magnifying God's name. What does that mean? That means that sin is primarily grievous. Not because of the consequences and mess that it makes in your life. That's bad. And not even because of the relationship with God that you've broken. That's bad too. But sin is primarily grievous because it is an offense against the majesty of God. Are you still with me? Because this is... This is a truth at the very bottom of the pool. This is one that, if you're not engaged with me, this is a huge point that I want you to hit. So, are we all okay? Or do we need do we need to stand up and shake our hands a little bit? We got enough oxyhemoglobin going on up there, and we're thinking. Yeah. Okay. Just keep breathing, right? Keep breathing. Our contingency from Bethel, they come to Jerusalem looking for an end to their mourning and fasting. Verse 3, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done so many years? To their question, God replies, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? Now the Old Testament, we see it in the New as well. The Old Testament, people fasted when their circumstances were such that it required mourning, it required repentance... It required a turning, a seeking of forgiveness of sins. There was contrition, there was humility, and there was broken in the midst of their fasting. They usually fasted in dust and ashes, and they would rent their clothes, and they'd put dust and ash on their head, so that everybody would know that their state is miserable. But that wasn't the only reason. Right fasting is always to, to communicate this sin that has violated the holy, majestic, glorious name of God. Even God, in the, to the prophet Joel, when he was calling his people back, he says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Contrition. Right sorrow. Right sorrow. Not just because your sin's made a mess of things, because it does. And not just because our sin breaks that relationship with the living God, because it does. But a right sorrow over the fact that that sin... Even the smallest one in your mind is a gross, wicked, eternal offense against the majesty of the name of God. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 7. This godly sorrow that brings repentance, that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. That's the the sin that's confessed. I'm broken over the fact that I have dishonored your name compared to the worldly sorrow. The worldly sorrow that brings death. The, in other words, this contingency had come and they were having a little self-pity party. For 70 years we've done this, Lord. The temple's almost finished. We were fasting because we wanted the temple to come back. The temple's now coming back. Therefore, can we stop the fast? In other words, they didn't have to say it to God. God knew. It's not about God. It was about what? Several things, likely. You know what I mean? I imagine they wanted lots of people to see them suffering. I imagine they wanted people to say, hey, you know, our temple's been burned down. We want the temple to come back. If we fast long enough, God will bring the temple back. And they were just using God as a means of getting their temple rebuilt. Instead of what? What should they have been fasting over? How about adultery? Their sin was an adultery against God. How about idolatry? Their sin was an idolatry against God. How about violating the covenant relationship that God made through Abraham with his people? Instead of my circumstances, my woes, my suffering, my city, my temple, instead of my God. They were fasting over the horizontal impact of their sin. All the practical workings of sin in their life. And it wasn't vertical. It wasn't because of the sin against God that they were fasting. And now the temple was approaching its completion. They thought to themselves, we got what we want. Now maybe we can stop this ridiculous exercise of fasting. 
God knows the heart. He goes straight to it and reveals the magnitude of their sin itself. It wasn't that the temple was destroyed. It wasn't that the city was destroyed. It wasn't that for these 70 years in exile, they were fasting because of him. It wasn't for any of them. He knew. They knew. You notice there was no argument. Oh, no, Lord. No, 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 no. We fa- he knows. And the worst part is, we know. I mean, you're listening to this, I hope, and my first, I'm reading, going, oh, oh, how many times, days, months, years have I exercised a religious discipline of some kind? Fasting, Bible, prayer, corporate gatherings. How many times, Lord, have I done that? And it wasn't about you. It wasn't about you. I said it was about you, and I wanted it to be about you, but I really didn't because it was about me the whole time. What I want. So I'll ask yourself this rhetorical question. When you sin, and you suffer the temporal consequences of sin, maybe it's a loss of integrity, maybe it's a loss of job, maybe it's a broken marriage, maybe it's a compromised relationship. When you sin, and you confess that sin to God, Is it because the circumstances are no longer good? Is it because you have a broken relationship with God? Or is it because that sin violates His majesty? When I first came to a saving grace in Christ, early in my walk, and I imagine this was true for you as well, I'm growing in the faith, I'm studying my Bible, and I come across passages that tell me that if I sin, I'm to confess my sin, and, and make things right. So, early in my, my life, um, I don't know about your besetting sins, but one of mine is my tongue. Um, and so, early in my, my walk with Christ, early in my marriage, I'm noticing that my tongue is doing damage. I'm saying things to my wife that I ought not say. I'm bringing pain to the relationship. And so, I confess my sins to my wife, saying, would you please forgive me? What was the motivation? I want her to be nice to me again. Right? I mean, I broke the relationship. So, I'm saying, please forgive me. Which isn't wrong biblically, but the motivation was so that she, we would have a good relationship. Completely self-centered. And then years pass, and I'm growing in my faith, and reading more of my Bible, and I'm like, ooh. The sin's vertical also. As David said, against you and you alone I have sinned, O God. And so I thought, oh, I've I got to confess to God. I, yeah, I, I said things I ought not to have said to my wife, but I've got to confess to God too because I sinned against him. And that means our relationship is broken. I mean, that's the evangelical phrase, right? I broke my relationship with the living God through sin. And so I say, Lord, forgive me for sinning against you. Now, are we okay too? And I'm going to go to my wife and make sure we're okay. And do you realize both my seeking forgiveness for that reason with my wife and my seeking forgiveness from God, it's still all self-centered. Why? So the relationship's now good on both ends. And then by God's grace, with a few more years and a little more study, I had to confess of all those confessions. I had to confess the sins of all those confessions. He said, what do you mean? The reason, fundamentally, I mean, we are to confess sins to make our relationships right here on earth. The Bible prescribes that. We are to confess our sins to God to make that relationship right as well again when we break that. But fundamentally, every time we confess It should start with and end with seeking forgiveness for grieving the majesty and the name of a holy God. Fundamentally, right worship, when it comes to righteousness and the mortification of sin, is, Lord, forgive me first, because this sin slandered your name. Whether you make things right with with us or with my wife, My first confession, my greatest heart's grief, is that I did not bring you honor and glory. Your name is worthy. My sin has tarnished that. And so we move out of the, once again, man-centric approach toward righteousness and mortification of sin. And we move into a theocentric, a God-centric. It's about Him again, even in our confession. It's about Him And should be. Jonathan Lehman writes. In the same book. Sin is more than a broken relationship. And salvation is more than a restored relationship. This is deep. 
I love it. Listen, hold, grab it. Sin is an offense against majesty and salvation is a restoration to the adoration of majesty. A restoration to the adoration of majesty. In Moses' words, having no other gods. In Jesus' words, loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is why the Puritan prayer reads, Let me never forget that the heinousness of sin lies not so much in the nature of the sin committed as in the greatness of the person sinned against. I should just stop talking. Right worship fights against sin because it's fighting for God's majesty. Right worship fights for his glory. We mortify sin to magnify his name. We destroy sin and live holy, righteous lives to fight for his glory and his honor. And you know what? Uh, Eric, uh, oh, no, no, that's not going to come. We'll leave it. Someone once said (laughs) that now is the only time that we have to fight for God. Now. Whatever time he gives us to fight for his majesty and fight for his glory. True worship proclaims his glory above all else. And so rather being concerned ultimately about the consequences our sin brings or even the broken relationships between one another and God, The ultimate concern is God's glory. It is his name. It is his name. So first principle, right worship is for God. Second principle, the mortification of sin is to magnify God's name. Living holy lives is to magnify his name. Third principle, you ready? From the text. Right worship is always drawn from and exercised by or according to the word of God. Right worship is always drawn from and exercised according to what the Bible says. Look at verse 7. Were not these the words the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with her cities around her and the south and lowland were inhabited? Now, you get to verse 7 and your first question should be, what words? Words is he talking about? Because he's saying it implied, were not these the words? What words? What words were proclaimed by the prophets to the people before Nebuchadnezzar came in in 586 and leveled the city? What words? What words were given by the prophets to the people before they had to start fasting and mourning over the conditions of their broken city? What words did God give When the times were good, when Jerusalem and her surrounding cities were inhabited and prosperous. What words? You say, the new word. No, the exact same words. The exact same word. God said to the people, I am God. You are my people. Repent, believe, and follow me. The words never changed. The same words the prophet said to them, Zechariah is saying to them, that we are saying to one another by God's grace today, true repentance, true worship, true religion starts in the heart. It starts in the heart. God must do a work in you. He must transform you. The Bible says you must be born again. Prophets have said from the beginning that we must put God first. In all of our exercises, all the religious exercises, God must be first. And if he's not, then our worship, whatever we call it, no matter how right it is when the word of God is truly in vain. Do you remember Samuel's dialogue with King Saul in 1 Samuel 15? God speaks directly through Samuel to Saul and he says, go and kill the Amalekites. Every man, every woman, every child, every animal. Direct word from God. What does Saul do? (laughs) You know what Saul does. Saul did this a lot. 1 Samuel 15 verses 8 and 9. 
Saul took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and kept for himself the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and lambs, and everything that was good. So Samuel comes to Saul in 1 Samuel 15 and says to the king, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey, listen, saints. Boy, if we could get this one. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, Samuel said to Saul, he has rejected you as king and Saul loses his throne. Why? Because he didn't listen to the word of the Lord. Why? He did it his own way. Worship. Right worship will always be in accordance with what the Bible says. This is our word. So what does Samuel do? Samuel has a sorrow, but it's not a right sorrow. The response is extraordinary. I mean, I couldn't pick a... There couldn't be a better illustration for our text here. Samuel says to... Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the people, and so I gave in to them. And he says, now I beg you. Forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Saul's sorrow is a worldly sorrow. He said, ah, mm, I messed this one up. God's mad at me. The people are going to be mad at me. I've got to make things right. Samuel, come back, to, come back with me and let's make things right. Let's settle things here. There was no sorrow over the glory of God being tarnished. Hosea said, God said to Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and an acknowledgement, acknowledgement of God, Father, God rather than burnt offerings. Even in our passage, don't you find it incredibly ironic that they set up four specific fasts to deal with the discipline that God executed against them? That had they obeyed God in the first place, they wouldn't have to have had the fasts. Right? They were fasting over the destruction of the temple that was a product of them not listening to God. And so they set up an entire structure to deal with their disobedience. The prophets before the fall were denouncing the same thing. Hypocrisy in our worship. Man-centered worship. A greater concern for our consequences and our suffering and our pain than the glory of God. They called people to repent and put their faith and hope and love in the one who's worthy of it all. And once again, we find ourselves with nothing new under the sun. Refusing to simply hear, submit, and obey the word of God. How much, saints, of our suffering would be eliminated if we simply Heard, submitted, and obeyed the word of God. How much? How much in our lives? How much in the life of the church? If we said, this is what the Bible says. I don't even understand it fully, but I'm going to follow. I'm going to submit. I'm going to obey. Instead, we, we fill churches on Easter Sunday thinking, I'll get a trick. I'll get a program. Maybe they'll hand me a pill on the way out. And that'll solve it all. Not concerned about the glory of God. Not concerned about his majesty. How many people went to church today to have an experience? A religious experience? A worship encounter? I've heard this phrase, a holy high. Rather than seeking the glory of God. Three fundamental principles found in all biblical worship. It will be foreign about God. It'll be for the magnification of his name and it'll be exercised according to his word. Saints, that's not difficult to understand, but it is profoundly difficult and absolutely impossible apart from Christ to do. Because it's your whole life. It's not just Sunday morning. It's not just when you pray before you eat. It's your whole life. Your whole life is to be foreign about God. Your whole life is to magnify the glory of God. Your whole life is to be lived in accordance with what he said in his word. That's every moment of every day. Which takes us to our last point. 
how in the world are we supposed to do this? Because I just put before you an absolutely impossible endeavor. Every moment of every day that you're going to live for God, magnifying His name according to His word. And we know ourselves well, right? We know ourselves well enough to know that even when we do it right according to the word, it's still not right. We know ourselves. We know that even at this very moment, some of us are saying, I'm tired, I want to stop talking, I'm hungry, I want to eat, I have to go to the bathroom. You're saying things right now, and it's not about the glory of God. Right now. So even as, as, even as we bring forth this truth, saying, right now I sit condemned in this. Even when we get the form right, which we'll look at next week, especially verses 9 and 10 of Zechariah 7, we know that our motives, <laughs> deep down, are horribly self-centered. And that's why the contingency from Bethel did not respond. They went, that's right. He knows. He knows. 70 years of fasting, and not for you, Lord. It was all for us. We know that we engage in acts of worship to bring satisfaction, to bring a sense of peace. I'm, I'm troubled. I need to go to church. I'm filled with anxiety. I need to pray. I'm confused. I need to read my Bible. All good things. But the why that precedes all of those must be God's glory. And we know in our heart of hearts that we're no different than those men from Bethel. We know in our heart of hearts that it's not all about God. Much of our lives isn't about God at all. Much of our lives lived on a daily basis, it's about me. It's about you. It's about what we want. So you say, this is a mighty predicament. How do I get out of it? I'll, I'll give you another simple answer. I mean, lots of simple things today, right? Hard, but simple in that we, the answer is right before us. What do you need? You, you need a new heart because you got the wrong desires. Right? We need a new heart. We need a heart that loves God first. Heart, mind, soul, strength loves God first. So how do you, how do, how do I, how do we, how do the 200 million that filled the churches today actually authentically worship God? I mean, what an extraordinary thought. If 200 million people on this day in this country authentically worship God, I dare say that the earth would move, right? I mean, things would shake if 200 million people authentically worship God for the distinct and sole purpose of bringing Him honor and glory. Not hearing God say, I hate, I despise your religious feasts, I cannot stand your assemblies. Not that. So how do we make it about him and not about us? How? One of the things that we need to see is that only a God-centered worship will actually transform us. I mean, this is truly upside down. Only a God-centered worship has the power to change us from the inside out, starting from the heart and working its way out. Only a God-centered worship has the power to make us holy as He is holy. In other words, you get offended when I tell you it should all be about God. But what we don't understand is that right worship about God is what's best for us too. When we worship God first and foremost and love Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, then we are immeasurably blessed in every way. And that means the best worship for you is the worship that's not about you at all. The best worship for you is the worship that is all about God. You say, that doesn't make any sense. I tried to explain it to my colleague one time. I said, I love my wife more because I love God most. And she says, that doesn't make any sense. If you love God most, you can't love your wife more. I said, of course it does. If I love God the most, then I will not make my wife an idol. I will love her properly in Christ. So you say, ah, the benefit that I get from this, all the blessings of right worship of God, comes to me if I worship Him first? Yes. Yes. But that's still not the reason. 
to really know how you do this, we'll go back to Deuteronomy 6.5. Single salient command. God said to Moses, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Jesus repeats the command in Matthew 22. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. So we have heart, soul, mind, strength. And he says, this is the first and greatest commandment. In other words, if by God's grace you've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you have confessed your sins, if you have repented and believed in the Lord, if you are saved, then God's saying the way you make your worship right, being saved, now being in me, is to make me your greatest love. Love me. Love me first and most above all other things and all other people. Love me before you love your wife. Love me before you love your job or your finances or your children or your grandchildren or your entertainment. Love me first. Love me most. With every fiber of your being, love me. In John chapter 13... After the Last Supper had been observed, John tells us that Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. Listen to this. I tell you the truth. One of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple. He motioned to John and he said, Ask him which one he means. Of course, Peter wants to know. Leaning back against Jesus, John asked him, Lord, who is it? Who's going to betray you? Jesus answered him, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. And then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, now listen closely. You're saying to yourself, I know where this goes. Judas hands him over. He's arrested. He's persecuted. He's crucified. And he rises from the dead for me. Listen to what Jesus says next. Once Judas had left, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in him and will glorify him at once. And the disciples went, huh? Five times in two verses, Jesus uses the word glory, doxazo, to esteem, to magnify, to ascribe glory. What had happened? This final piece of God's redemptive plan was now in place. Judas was off to go to the Sanhedrin and to, to get the people to come and make false charges. The plan was now set in motion, right? And it wasn't going to stop. This final act of loving obedience of our Lord's arrest and of his beating and his crucifixion and his resurrection set in place. This final act of dying for the sins of you and me and all who repent and believe. And you say it's glorious. It is. The love is extraordinary that he pours out for those he'd say it is. But that's not why he did it. That's not why he did it. That's not what he just said. What did he just say? What did he just say? Now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Meaning what? Jesus Christ went to the cross. He died for our sins. He was buried in the tomb and on the third day... This day, right, Resurrection Sunday, he rose from the dead. Glory be to God. The blessings are immeasurable. You've been set free if you know him from the reign of sin and death. You are free in Christ, free indeed if you know him. But that's not why he did it. 
He did it. He was arrested. He was persecuted. He was crucified. He was buried. He experienced hell to bring his father glory. That's why he did it. I know that's not going to be the primary message on this Easter Sunday in most churches. But Christ did all that. The act of the redemption of mankind was not for mankind. We are blessed by it. But it was for God, the Father. And then God the Father turns around as a result of the infinite sacrifice Christ made to redeem mankind. And the Father glorifies the Son. It's extraordinary. I mean, it's extraordinary. John says, Jesus says in John 17, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So the Son brings God glory in doing and completing the work of redemption of man. True worship. And the Father brings the Son glory. The Father glorifies the Son because He completed the redemptive work of mankind. True worship. And the most extraordinary thing for us is that we're not just bystanders. We're swept up in the whole thing. God the Father glorifying the Son because of His redemptive work. God the Son glorifying the Father because of His redemptive work. And we're up and caught in it all. And it's not about us. It's all about Him. When Jesus Christ climbed up on the cross, the Father's heart soared. Because the Father knew that he was doing it out of his love for him. His love for us, yes, but first and foremost, his love for him. When the Son rose from the dead on that resurrection Sunday, his heart soared. Because he knew in that single act, his father's name would be magnified. Saints, if we can get this, if we can just get a little bit of this, your heart will soar too. When you stand back and you say to yourself, it's not about me. Praise God, it's not about me. It's about the Father glorifying the Son and the Son glorifying the Father. And in the midst of it, he's called me into this glory. And the Bible says that one day, because we're an inheritance, right? We're the inheritance that God the Father gives to the Son for His great work. And what does that mean? That means that God is going to pour out His glory on us. And we're going to reflect it back to Him for all eternity. (coughs) This inner Trinitarian, glory-giving, glory-receiving, that's been taking place before anything ever was, you're going to be part of. And drawn into. And I, I can't even put it into words. It's just pathetic that I, I, can't, I could not begin to tell you how glorious this glory exchange is going to be. But if you get a glimpse of it. If you see the degree to which Christ glorified the Father by dying for our sins. If you see the degree to which the Father glorified the Son by having him go to the cross to die for our sins. If you see the sacrifice and you see the treasure of Jesus... And you see the glory moving back and forth. It'll fill you. Your heart will be changed. And you will be able to not only see and understand, but then exercise the first and greatest commandment. And that is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Not even because of what he did for you, although that's worth too, but because of who he is. Who he is. I'm going to read to you the 19th Psalm, which is a psalm that extols the glory of God. If you came here this morning looking for a religious experience or comfort for your guilty conscience or because your wife made you, I pray that you see that's not real 
worship. I pray that by God's grace through the prophet Zechariah that you see that all real worship is for the glory of God. And that you won't just make that Sunday morning, but that you will realize that your whole life is to be be a living sacrifice that brings God glory. It's the only reason that we should remember and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. Which is like a bridegroom coming forth from its pavilion. Like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinance of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, that much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me, and then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father, forgive us as a people, not just here at Camden, but as your people throughout the world. Forgive us for even on this day, where we are to celebrate and remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ, forgive us for even on this sacred day not putting you first, for gathering to sing for reasons other than to bring you glory and honor, for gathering to pray for reasons other than to magnify your name, for reading our Bible or or engaging in ministry or doing work for your kingdom, for any reason other than and the magnification and glorification of your holy name, you are worthy. You are holy. You are God. You are the ones who created the heavens and the earth. You're God. Forgive me, Lord, for preaching sermons not to bring you honor and glory. Forgive us for using our hands and our feet, Lord, as instruments of righteousness that were really not to bring you honor and glory. And from this day, Lord, I pray that we would hear you ask us the question, why? Every day, all day, why? Why are we working? Why are we engaged in marriage? Why are we studying our Bibles? Why are we going, why? And by your grace, because you've given us a new heart in Christ, I pray that answer can be your glory, for your glory. This is an impossible task apart from your son and apart from the spirit that he gives us to live in accordance with it. But you said we can do all things through him who strengthens us. And so we ask, Lord, that our lives bring you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.